ground control to Major Tom. This is Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden. It's time to take your protein pills and put your helmets on to explore some unique beliefs, rituals, and trinkets we use to keep our fears at bay. Today, we're blasting off to explore a NASA tradition that's been around since the 1960s. Prior to launch, astronauts meet for a pre-flight breakfast of steak and eggs. It started with NASA legend Alan Shepard, the first American in space and one of only 12 people to walk on the moon. Shepard swore by the hearty breakfast before heading into the great unknown. Like we witnessed with sailors whistling on a ship, astronauts are taking a precarious voyage into a hostile environment, so it's unsurprising that they have become superstitious. In our story today, a veteran astronaut is horrified when her customary breakfast is replaced by a new age synthetic food, upsetting not only stomachs, but endangering her mission as well. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Coming up, a rocket takes off with some unsettling cargo. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. When Commander Ruth Nelson arrived at the launch pad, she was swarmed by a battalion of workers. They weighed her, took her vitals, evaluated her sleep, and stuck electrodes to her body. As a former NASA astronaut, she was accustomed to being poked and prodded. In the past, she'd felt there was something special about it. It was a source of national pride. Now that she worked for a private company, she felt more like an expendable lab rat. SpaceGen was owned by billionaire Hayden Trask, who seemed to care less about the majesty of spaceflight and more about his personal glory. Ruth swallowed her annoyance, though, because SpaceGen was one of the few American companies still going into orbit, and Ruth's passion was simple, piloting ships to space. Even though Ruth was the commander of the voyage, it was Hayden Trask's crowning achievement. Not only was he personally funding it, he was also accompanying the crew. With his billions of dollars, he was now the sole supplier of food to the International Space Station. If this mission succeeded, there would be more trips for Ruth at the helm. So, she bit her tongue as a technician smacked another adhesive probe to her skin. Besides, there was something even more invasive than Space Gen's electrodes heading her way. Zoe, their social media maven. The young woman, who was barely 20 and had a streak of turquoise hair, shoved a camera in Ruth's face and began firing questions at her. What did Ruth think about before flights? Did she ever get scared? What's it like being strapped to a missile that could explode at any moment? Ruth 
forced a smile. You know what John Glenn told me once? A million things could go wrong. On the launch pad, mid-flight, in orbit. So all you can do is follow your mission, stay calm, and trust your crew. At that moment, Ruth felt a hand touch her shoulder. She turned to see her veteran flight engineer, Alex Nguyen. She introduced him to Zoe's camera. Speaking of trusting your crew, this is the best engineer I could ask for. Alex blushed a little. Morning, Commander, Alex said. Looks like a good day to fly. Ruth and Alex were old friends. She asked him about his family and kids. When they were finished catching up, Ruth clapped her hands together. How about a little pre-flight breakfast? Ruth had been looking forward to her steak and eggs all morning. In addition to being the traditional NASA breakfast, it was also the last real food she would get before the week-long mission to the space station. A space gen worker led them into a makeshift dining area in the hangar. Ruth, Alex, and Zoe sat around a small table with a white tablecloth. When a team of servers arrived with platters, however, there were no breakfast foods. Instead, there were silver packets that contained a bright green substance, the consistency of porridge. Ruth glanced around. Where's the food? Zoe grabbed a packet, scooped a spoonful into her mouth, and smiled for the camera. This is it! Then she angled the camera on Ruth. Ruth looked around as if it was some sort of practical joke. Before she could voice her concern, she heard someone behind her. Morning, Commander. I see you're enjoying our bio-yum. Ruth turned to see a pale young man with a mop of messy hair and a hoodie. It was Hayden Trask, CEO of SpaceGen. Ruth shook his hand diplomatically. I knew we'd be eating packaged food up there, but steak and eggs is a tradition that Alan Shepard started with the Mercury missions. Trask grinned. Commander, that was the past. This is the future. Bioyum is a complete vehicle of nutrition, amino acids, phospholipids, vitamins, and minerals. It's going to revolutionize spaceflight. Ruth squinted at him. Vehicle of nutrition doesn't sound like food. Trask laughed. <laughs> I like to call it a food disruptor. Ruth remained skeptical. Well, are you going to eat it with us? Trask held up his hand politely. Oh, I had mine already. I have it every morning. Then he looked intently at Ruth. Come on, Commander. Zoe is eating it. The camera is rolling. The whole world is watching. Have some. Ruth looked at Zoe and the camera. She knew this was important. She didn't want to jeopardize her future with Space Gen, but her stomach churned looking at the green substance. Not only did it look unappetizing, but it went against her instincts as an astronaut. After years of tradition and a well-proven routine, she didn't want to try something new, moments before a mission. All of a sudden, Alex, the flight engineer, broke the silence. I'll eat it, he said. It'll be fine. Trask clapped his hands together. Thank you, Mr. Nguyen. Then he turned back to Ruth and waited for her to do the same. Ruth sighed and grabbed a packet of bio-yum. I'll eat it in a minute, she said. I forgot I have to handle something. Ruth 
hurried out of the dining area and grabbed her phone. There wasn't much time before launch, but an app on her phone showed a nearby diner could deliver to the hangar. A short time later, a driver arrived at a side door and handed her a bag. Ruth snuck it into a restroom stall and opened it, revealing scrambled eggs and a New York strip. She didn't have time to savor it, but it put her mind at ease. She didn't think of herself as superstitious. Instead, it was a connection to the long tradition of brave men and women going into space. When she emerged from the bathroom, she was ready to fly. She channeled the swagger of John Glenn, Sally Ride, and Neil Armstrong. She pulled on her spacesuit and joined the crew on the launch pad. Zoe continued to film as an elevator lifted them over 200 feet in the air to the very top of the rocket. From the outside, Ruth could see that it was taller than normal. Attached to the usual space capsule and its storage pod was a brand new section emblazoned with logos for SpaceGen and BioYum. It was a giant cylinder full of silver foil packets that would supply the space station with food for the next five years. It made Ruth miss the old days of space cuisine. There was something adventurous about eating dehydrated beef stroganoff and freeze-dried ice cream. It might not have been the best-tasting food in the world, but at least it was real. Now, visitors to the ISS would be stuck with whatever strange goop Trask's lab had come up with. But Ruth didn't have time to think about that now. She slipped into the pilot seat and cinched her seatbelt. Ground control, this is Kestrel 5. Comms check, over. She spoke calmly into her microphone. A voice responded in her ear and over the capsule speakers. Loud and clear, Kestrel 5. Ruth then instructed the crew to give status checks after they were buckled in. One by one, they reported back that they were ready to go. Ruth adjusted several dials on the instrument panel. Kestrel 5 is a go for launch. In a few moments, a voice counted down over the speakers. Five, four, three, two, one, ignition. Ruth felt the rocket come alive. She was slammed back into her seat as it climbed into the air. Even with earplugs and her helmet, the sound was deafening. Ruth tried to focus on the instrument panel. Their velocity was increasing. 100 miles per hour. 150, 200, 300. Then it started jumping in big leaps. 500, 800. Ruth glanced at one of the tiny porthole windows. Outside, the sky was bright blue. Within moments, it became darker and darker. They were entering the upper reaches of the atmosphere. Only two minutes into the flight, she glimpsed the darkness of deep space and the blue earth shrinking below them. They were now traveling at almost 4,000 miles per hour and accelerating. A moment later, Ruth adjusted the vectors of the first stage engine. Kestrel 5 commencing orbital roll, approaching main engine cutoff, she said. Within moments, Ruth felt a muffled explosion behind them and things went quiet in the cabin. The giant rocket that had propelled them into space had just decoupled from the ship. It would now fall back to Earth and be recovered in the ocean. What remained was their space capsule, a cargo bay, the huge removable pod of BioYum, and a second-stage booster rocket. They were now free from the Earth's gravity, virtually weightless.
Ruth turned in her seat and smiled. Congratulations, folks. We're officially in sub-orbit. In a few minutes, we'll start our second-stage rocket burn. Trask tugged on Zoe's spacesuit and urged her to film him in zero gravity. He tried to explain the physics of orbital flight and the need to accelerate up to 17,000 miles per hour or they'd get pulled back to Earth. Ruth and Alex, the flight engineer, rolled their eyes and shrugged. Trask was mostly right, and they were fine letting him play hero in space. As Trask was narrating their trip, though, Ruth noticed that Zoe looked a little pale. Zoe, are you okay? Zoe nodded. Yeah, uh, I'll be fine. Probably just first take off jitters. Ruth reached back and squeezed the young woman's knee. Don't worry. I got them on my first time up too. Just take deep breaths. Ruth handed her a specially designed vacuum sickness bag that would contain any chunks. Suddenly though, Zoe unbuckled her seatbelt. Her face looked panicked. I need to use the bathroom. She scrambled out of her seat and disappeared into the rear of the capsule. Ruth looked over to Alex. How much time do we have before the second stage burn? Alex glanced at his panel. Five minutes, 31 seconds. Ruth nodded. Plenty of time. After a few minutes, they heard a loud vacuum flush in the back of the spacecraft. Zoe floated back to the cockpit and buckled into her seat. She looked momentarily better, but her face still seemed grey. As Ruth turned back to the instruments, she heard Alex's voice. Commander, I'm not feeling so hot either. She looked over at Alex, whose face had gone as pale as Zoe's. His eyes seemed to roll slightly as if he was on the deck of a pitching sailboat. Ruth looked at him closely. You never get motion sickness. Alex shook his head and squinted at his control panel. It's more than that. I I can't see the controls. I don't know how I'm going to help you with the second stage. Suddenly, he unbuckled and shot toward the back of the ship. Trask looked concerned, but not about the crew. He looked intently at Ruth. You can pilot the ship solo, right? We have to dock with the ISS. Ruth stared at him in disdain. Of course I can, but it's a big liability to do this with one set of eyes. It's endangering this craft and the space station. Just then, an alarm beeped on the main console. Ruth turned to check it out. It's Zoe's blood oxygen level, she said. It's plummeting. She looked over at Zoe, whose head rolled around. She's starting to lose consciousness. I need to call this in. We have to consider aborting the mission. Trask shook his head. You can't be serious. This is an important mission for Space Gen. We can't just turn around. Ruth squinted at him. I don't know if it was that gunk you had the meat earlier, but something is affecting them. Trask started to become more agitated. <laughs> That's impossible. There's nothing wrong with Bioyum. We ran a year of trials. If there was a problem, we'd all be sick, including you. Ruth looked him in the eye. I didn't eat it. Trask's jaw dropped open in shock. He looked personally offended. Ruth didn't have time for his bruised ego. She activated her radio. Ground, this is Kestrel requesting... 
Before she could finish, Trask unclipped his seat and grabbed Ruth's arm. A voice came over the speakers. Kestrel 5, go ahead. You cut out. Trask narrowed his eyes at her. You may be the commander, but I own this ship. I own you. You'll do what I say, or I'll make sure you never fly another mission ever again. Ruth looked at him. The kid was a multi-billionaire. She knew he was serious, but if she stood by while her crew got sick or worse, her career would be over too. The voice on the speakers became more insistent. Kestrel 5, please repeat. You broke up. Ruth locked eyes with Trask. You want to fire me? Go ahead. But do it after I've saved your life. She clicked her radio again. Ground, this is Kestrel 5. Just then, however, the cockpit lit up like a Times Square billboard. It started flashing with red and yellow warning lights. Throughout the cockpit, alarms sounded. Trask looked around, panicked. What's happening? Ruth traced her fingers over the screen, reading the various warnings. We're getting multiple pressure faults in the cargo hold. It looks like it's the waste containment system. She stopped. Alex! In a flash, she pushed off from her seat and glided through the cockpit through an airlock into the rear of the cargo compartment. It contained emergency repair parts and, of course, the only restroom. As she inspected the area, she noticed a strange green foam expanding through the spaces in the wall. Something was drastically wrong. She immediately traced the seepage to a series of pipes that led into the ship's holding tanks. Alex! You gotta get out of there! She yelled. Alex's voice cracked over the radio. I'm almost done. As Ruth continued to examine the leak, she realized there was another bigger issue. Alex! She yelled, voice brittle with fear. Whatever you do, don't flush. But it was too late. She heard the vacuum suction of a flush. An instant later, a massive explosion ripped through the rear of the ship. Coming up, Commander Ruth tries to save a doomed mission. Once upon a time, I thought I met Mr. Wright. The only problem? He was a huge liar. You were going out of your mind because you couldn't figure it out. I'm Abby Ellen. Join me as I tell the story of one con man who entangled his lovers, friends, co-workers, family, and me in an identity fraud scheme that stretched all the way to the Pentagon. Season 2 of Imposters, The Commander, a Spotify original from Parcast, premieres Monday, September 13th. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Now, back to the story. The blast sent Commander Ruth Nelson cartwheeling through the capsule. As soon as she recovered, she scrambled over to the wall. She punched the hatch button, sealing off the damaged pod. Through a thick polycarbonate window, she could see a giant hole torn open in the ship. The bathroom and storage pod were damaged. Beyond them, the bio-yum food pod was hanging by a few pieces of jagged metal. And in between, Ruth could peer into the black void of space. Ruth realized there was no way that Alex could have survived. His body was likely floating in space. The only consolation was that he likely died instantly. Ruth wanted to cry, but she didn't have time. The blast caused the ship to tumble off axis. 
She started to feel dizzy as it spun end over end. It took every ounce of energy to drag herself back to the pilot's chair and get the spinning ship under control. When they stopped rotating, Trask spoke up. Is the bio yarn part okay? He asked anxiously. Ruth twisted around in her seat to face him. Alex is dead, and all you care about is the food. Trask held his hands up. There's nothing we can do for him now, but we can salvage the mission. Ruth pointed at the back of the ship. We're lucky to be alive. She swung back around to the control panel and punched the radio button. Ground, we have a problem, she said. Instead of voices, though, the radio only crackled with static. Ruth shook her head. It must have damaged our comms link. She tried switching to alternate frequencies. Ground, if you can hear me, we have a hull breach and second stage damaged, requesting emergency re-entry protocol. But there was no response. Trask unbuckled and jumped over to Alex's seat next to Ruth. I told you, we're not aborting the mission. That's an order. Ruth shook her head. It isn't my choice anymore. That explosion destroyed our second stage engine. If we fire it up, it'll explode. So now we're stuck in orbit decay. It's only a matter of time until we're dragged back to Earth. To be precise, 38 minutes, 28 seconds. Just then, Zoe moaned in pain. Ruth scanned the instrument panel and examined Zoe's vital signs. She turned back to Trask. Her blood oxygen level is getting worse and she's getting feverish. What the hell is in that stuff? Trask held up his hands innocently. It's a complete vehicle of nutrition. Ruth interrupted him. You said that before. I don't want your corporate mumbo jumbo. What the heck is in it? She unbuckled and scooted over to a storage cabinet. She pulled out one of the foil packages. She pointed her finger to the ingredients list. It says here, food product. What does that mean? Trask blinked at her. It's a bioengineered silicone substrate. Ruth's eyes grew wide. Silicone? As in glue? Trask shrugged his shoulders helplessly. You don't understand. It was tested. Ruth decided to perform her own test on it. Perhaps the chemical expansion occurred when it reacted with a human body's water content in zero-g space. She stabbed a straw into the foil packet's side valve and injected a stream of water into it. She waited for it to expand, but after a few moments, nothing seemed to happen. Trask raised his hands in victory. See? It's not my bioyum. Ruth was surprised. Maybe the issue hadn't been the synthetic food after all. Perhaps the holding tank had been compromised by something else. She was about to give up when she remembered something. She sealed her lips around the straw and spit into it. All of a sudden, the package started expanding. Within moments, an oozing green substance burst through the side. It stuck to Ruth's hands like a spiderweb. She stuck it in the trash bag and secured it in the storage bulkhead. She turned to Trask. It seems your bioyum reacts with enzymes in a high-oxygen microgravity environment. Trask shook his head frantically. There's no way. We tested it. 
Ruth shut her eyes in frustration. Clearly not enough. She jumped back to the controls and checked their clock. The ship would start re-entry in less than 32 minutes. But there was one serious issue. The explosion had damaged the hull and their heat shields. Ruth dug through some of the cabin storage bulkheads, carefully avoiding the bag with the expanding bio-yum. She located two spare heat shield tiles, but then she returned to her seat and sighed. Trask looked at her. What's wrong? Ruth explained that they had spare tiles to repair the ship, but the epoxy to repair them was in the storage pod that exploded. Trask hung his head in his hands. We're screwed because we don't have glue? Suddenly, Ruth's face lit up. Actually, we do. She shot to the storage bulkhead, grabbed an armful of bio-yum packets and several plastic straws. As she rigged makeshift glue applicators with packets of bio-yum, she ran through the spacewalk instructions with Trask. When the glue packets were ready, they rushed to the airlock and suited up. Spacewalks were Ruth's favorite part of being an astronaut. She loved watching the Earth pass below. It looked so quiet and peaceful. This time, however, when they emerged from the airlock into space, she didn't have time to enjoy the view. She had to get to work. Ruth clipped her spacesuit to Trask's safety line, then started scaling carefully one hand over the other toward the hull breach. When she reached the hull, she realized just how close they'd come to death. If it had been any bigger, the whole ship might have broken apart. Thankfully, the spare heat shields were just big enough to fit over it. Ruth just had to secure them across the hole. She used the makeshift applicators to coat the jagged metal with the bio-yum glue. When the coating was thick enough, she secured the heat shields on top of it. The glue seemed to harden quickly in the airless environment. As she worked, she started to realize it was strange that Trask hadn't gotten sick from the strange green substance. She clicked her radio. Tell me the truth, she said. You didn't eat Bio-Yum this morning. There was a long pause on the other end. Ruth couldn't see him, but she could hear him breathing. Finally, he responded. I have a special diet. I can't eat it. Ruth shook her head. It made sense now why he hadn't gotten sick. Too bad her comlink with ground was out, or she'd shout his hypocrisy for all of space gender here. That would just have to wait until they were back on Earth. Right now, she had to focus on the heat shields. If they didn't work, none of this would matter. When Ruth was done, she spoke into her mic. Trask, reel me in. Ruth waited to feel a tug on her safety line, but nothing happened. She radioed again. Still, no answer. He must have ducked back into the capsule, she realized. She'd have to make it back across the exterior of the ship alone. She took a deep breath and started to haul herself back, hand over hand. Droplets of sweat beaded on her face and floated into the dome of her helmet. She had to be extra careful not to lose her grip. When she arrived at the airlock, she looked inside for Trask. Trask? Where are you? She yelled. But then, she spotted him, floating 50 yards away, 
opening an access panel on the huge food module. Trask, what are you doing? She called out. You need to get back in the ship. We're starting re-entry. Trask's voice crackled in her ear. I have to save the bioyum. If I can decouple it from the ship and fire the second stage remotely... It was a risk to go after him. But Ruth couldn't just leave him out there. She scrambled along the outer skin of the capsule toward Trask. She was almost there when she saw Trask disappear into the food pod. There was a short spurt of air vapor and Ruth felt a jolt reverberate through the Kestrel spaceship. Just then, the huge canister started to tumble slowly away. She saw Trask standing in the open passageway, staring back at her, eyes wide with surprise. Trask, get back to the ship, she yelled. But she knew the gap was already too wide. Ruth watched the pod drift away as they sailed over the earth. There was nothing she could do to help him now. She crawled back along the top of the capsule to the airlock. Inside, she removed her spacesuit and returned to the cockpit. Zoe opened her eyes weakly. Where's Trask? Ruth shook her head. He's gone. Ruth didn't have time to comfort her. She strapped herself back into her seat and prepped the ship for re-entry. She tried one last time to contact the ground crew, but the radios remained silent. As the capsule started to vibrate, she turned to Zoe and grabbed her hand. The whole ship shuddered like it was going to break apart. Ruth could barely see as her eyeballs vibrated in their sockets. The air outside the porthole window started to glow bright red. Ruth turned away and closed her eyes. If the glow spread any further, they'd likely break apart and spill into the sky. At this point, though, there was nothing she could do but wait. Ruth braced for the ship to come apart, but after a few moments, the ride became smoother. Outside the window, the sky started to turn blue. Ruth suddenly jerked upward in her seat as the automatic parachutes deployed. She squeezed Zoe's hand. They had made it through re-entry. Now, the pod floated through the air, swaying in the air currents. Then, finally, the capsule splashed into the Gulf of Mexico. All around the capsule, flotation devices inflated. Ruth could feel the capsule bobbing up and down on the surface. Just then, the radio crackled to life. Kestrel, come in. Kestrel, this is ground. Over. The voice sounded desperate. Ruth looked at the control panel excitedly. Ground! This is Kestrel! Ruth could hear people cheering on the other end. They're alive! Someone yelled. Kestrel, we have your coordinates. Rescue is on the way. Ruth smiled with relief. She helped Zoe unbuckle from her seat. The young woman was still sick, but she seemed like she would be okay. Ruth released the hatch and punched it outward. Salt air and sunlight streamed into the dark capsule. She stood up in the hole and looked around. She had never been so happy to see the sky. Tears clouded her eyes, though, as she realized Alex, her engineer, would never get the chance again. It was her worst nightmare, not bringing her full crew home. Ruth's moment of remembrance was interrupted, though, 
by the sound of explosions high in the atmosphere. She looked up to see glowing streaks like a meteor shower, except these were a strange shade of fluorescent green. Zoe stood weakly from her seat and joined Ruth in the hatch. She looked up at the neon trails in the sky. Is that what I think it is? she asked. Ruth nodded solemnly. Zoe smiled weakly. I guess when John Glenn said to trust your crew, he didn't imagine someone like Trask. Ruth put her arm around Zoe and sighed. The young woman was right. With Trask gone, she realized that her decision was much easier. She was done working for private space companies like SpaceGen. She vowed that she'd return to NASA and carry on the traditions in history like loyalty, safety, and good old steak and eggs. Of the approximately 600 people who have gone to space, a reported 32 have died in the process. Statistically, astronauts have about a 1 in 20 chance of dying. It's no surprise then that space travelers are a superstitious bunch. Retired NASA astronaut Paul Lockhart described their pre-flight practices as comforting actions that make what you're doing approachable so that you're more calm. In other words, they take astronauts' minds off the constant risk of death. But the tradition of steak and eggs is more significant than a lucky charm or superstition. It's also the last hearty meal astronauts get before launch. After that, it's dehydrated packets, powdered drinks, and other packaged foods. Steak and eggs may not be the most glamorous meal, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize if it was comforting for Alan Shepard and Neil Armstrong, it should be good enough for the rest of us. Thanks for listening to Superstitions. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free exclusively on Spotify. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Superstitions was written by Adam De Silva, with writing assistance by Robert Teamstra and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Brian Petras. I'm Alastair Murden. 